This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Resident Evil Lorecast, the podcast that will explore the various mediums and lore of the Resident Evil franchise such as the video games, movies, novels, and more. And here are your hosts, Ariel, Daniel, and Aaron. Got something that might interest you. <laughs> well, welcome to another episode of the Resident Evil Lorecast. I am your host, Aaron, and joining me are my co-hosts, Ariel. Hello. And Daniel. Hi. And today... We're going to be discussing viruses. Everybody's favorite thing when it comes to Resident Evil. Sure. Before we jump into that, though, what is your favorite virus? Well, it's I guess it's not technically a virus, is it? It's the Las Plagas. It's more of a parasite, but still my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I'm really not for sure. After reading about the Golgotha virus, I think I'm going to go with the G virus. Oh, good old G virus. Ooh, that's surprising. I would have suspected you said Ouroboros. Yeah. Just because I like the game doesn't necessarily mean. <laughs> well, my favorite is the nemesis. Parasite. Yeah. Parasite. Yeah. It's still, still whatever. <laughs> but anyway, okay, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, I believe Ariel has our first list of viruses. Oh, you would be wrong. Today <gasps> it's Daniel. Oh, Daniel. Yeah, we get to cover the progenitor virus, which was mentioned some in the last episode. All right. So, with the progenitor virus, it's going to be a lot of science terms for everybody out there. You're going to explain them to us, right? Some of them, yes. <laughs> so, progenitor virus is a family of RNA viruses. I'm not going to tell you RNA. I'll make you look that up, everybody. <laughs> so mean. Progenitor is immensely ancient and is suspected of being hundreds of millions, if not billions of years old, and is considered to have both aided and hindered evolution of Earth's ecology through the extremities of its resulting mutations. While otherwise behaving as a typical group six virus in the Baltimore classification, which I'll explain that. Baltimore classification is a system used to classify viruses based on their manner of mRNA or messenger RNA synthesis. Okay. Now All right. You'll have to look further into that if you want to know more than that, but <laughs> I figured I'd explain the Baltimore classification. Progenitor is distinct from all other viruses by being able to reverse lysis in cells and revive organisms dead for considerable lengths of time. Whereas other retroviruses such as HIV will target particular cells of a particular animal's body. So what you're saying is 
unlike other viruses, this one has the ability to revive dead cells throughout the body. According to the research that they have on it, yes. That's pretty intimidating. <laughs> but it would explain a lot. Mostly. <laughs> Progenitor is capable of infecting the cells of any organism, whether animal, fungal, plant, or bacterial. So this is why we have, like, plant zombie from Resident Evil 1. We've got, what, crows in Resident Evil 1. Wasn't there a spider also? There was also a spider, yep. And then we, we have that actually in a couple games. We have the wolves and the dogs. So this makes sense. Yeah, this virus is the basis of most other viruses. Yep. Considerable research on progenitor has been undertaken since its discovery in the late 1960s, and a number of engineered strains have since come into existence primarily for bioweapons research. Which we went over in the last episode when we discussed the founding scientists. Yes, it was covered in that previous episode. Yeah. The progenitor has been tied to human history since the Neolithic when the progenitor viral disease was contracted by the West African Tapaya tribe. Another one covered in the last episode. Yes, most of this information will recap. Some of it will, yes. Though progenitor was in the genome of many organisms, it was almost universally an active junk DNA. Within a series of caverns on the coastline, however, certain environmental conditions triggered viral expression within the Sonetrepe daisies. In rare instances, men within the tribe would survive the extreme effects of the disease and gain superhuman abilities, ranging from enhanced strength to genius intellect to a naturally long life. As a result of this viral disease, the Depaya flourished as a complex civilization within the caverns long before the pyramids, effectively millennia ahead of their time in terms of construction practices. So what it's saying is this virus gave this tribe superhuman abilities and like evolutionary traits the one who's the ones who could survive it yes yeah yeah because if you weren't uh, worthy you weren't <laughs> for very long <laughs> so it's like a darker version of uh, the Black Panther powers yes <laughs> over time the Depaya experimented with bioorganic weaponry also known as BOWs which will come up in many of these podcasts. So wait, the tribe itself experimented in BOWs? Yes. Wow. They did that by deliberately infecting animals with the virus through flower consumption and are known to have performed sacrificial rituals to the animals. Wow. They would toss people into the pit to be consumed. Though eventually, these mutant animals escaped their pit and devastated the city, killing their king. Okay. Without any guidance and unable to find any more among their tribe capable of surviving infection, the Depaya migrated out to the marshlands, though kept soldiers in the ruins to ward off any intruders who may consume the flowers. So then we move to the 19th century, where outside of the Depaya tribe, knowledge of the progenitor viral disease was recorded in passing by 19th century British explorer Henry Travis, which I believe was mentioned in the previous episode. He learned of their religion and folklore regarding magical flowers. In the 60s, Travis's work got the attention of European eugenic circle consisting of the acclaimed academics of James Marcus, Oswald E. Spencer, and Edward Ashford, as yep. covered previously. 
where they discovered the Garden of the Sun and the flowers within. So on December 4th, they were able to isolate the virus from within the flowers. Okay. So soon after they returned to Europe, Marcus's research on progenitor uncovered its ability to repair dead cells. An E. coli cell underwent lysis after exposure to 0.1 ppm of chlorine. After its death was confirmed, the virus was introduced to the petri dish and was seen to repair the cell's membrane, successfully mutate the nuclear genome, and cause it to undergo cell division. Oh, so they killed something, uh, killed a cell with bleach, and then brought it back with the virus. Yes. Wow. Though this should have been the biggest discovery of paleobiology since the 1953 Miller Ure experiment findings, which, looking to that, that is a chemical experiment used to test the chemical origin of life under simulated conditions thought to be present on early Earth. Okay, yeah. Let's see. Swiss research into the virus was quickly concluded in early 1967, owing to allegations of resulting tampering. So it sounded like somebody was tampering with the virus. Mm-hmm. With the government unwilling to fund the project, Marcus left for the Spencer estate, where research continued privately with funding from the Spencer Foundation. And now we're getting into where they then created Umbrella Corporation. Yep to further their studies on everything. Let's see. Which one research area was set up in the Arclay Mountains, which would be Marcus's. And then Edward Ashford and his son would begin on their British estate before setting up a lab in Antarctic. In, in the Antarctic. Let's see here. Two of the people that were only mentioned in the last podcast... Lord Beardsley and Lord Henry, they were two members of the circle who did not initially take part in Umbrella's founding, also took part at their laboratories in Gadowell and Lore, respectively. While the rest of the while the level of research performed in the 1960s by the other circle members is unknown, Spencer is known to have immediately gone on to human testing with his type A and type B prototype strains, having abducted Jessica and Lisa Trevor in 1967 for this purpose, which we covered previous yep. as well and Lisa was seen to develop superhuman abilities and was kept for further study so the last part of this for the progenitor during the early years of the company their research on progenitor was affected by the limits of the Sony Trepe itself as production of the virus was triggered by the extremely precise environmental conditions of the Garden of the Sun cultivation of recovered seeds proved to be a dead end as it would not grow anywhere but in Africa yep in 1968, a laboratory was set up in the Garden of the Sun itself, and within a year, samples of the virus were being collected and transported to the other labs. Marcus was kept in the United States to take charge of the completed university, while Bailey took over the African lab. The progenitor virus also has ties to the other projects that will be later discussed, such as the T-Virus Project, the G-Virus Project, and the Ouroboros Project. Okay. So, long story short... Progenitor is the beginning of everything when it comes to the viral strains for Resident Evil. That led to the T-virus and the main yeah, viruses. The main viruses, yeah. So I believe Ariel has that for us. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> so the T-virus. 
aka the tyrant virus, is the general name given to a series of mutant progenitor virus strains. Initially developed by Umbrella Pharmaceuticals in the late 1960s, the primary goal of the T-Virus project was to effectively eliminate the need for a large-scale conventional army and generate revenue to go to their eugenics program, the Wesker Project. Bum, bum, bum. Money. (laughs) (laughs) This required two things. The virus had to be highly contagious to the point of infecting an entire target population and guarantee a 100% mortality rate. Okay. But such a virus wasn't possible due to such contagions' tendencies to kill too many people at once and prevent further spread. By 1978, development moved from creating a lethal, highly contagious virus to one that would mutate hosts to become physically stronger and remain alive despite organ failures and severe brain damage. Super soldiers. Yep. The latter leading to murderous aggression and obsessive hunger to the state of cannibalism. Zombies. (laughs) (laughs) Good old T-virus. With the 1981 discovery of a statistical 10% of any population being naturally immune or unmutated asymptomatic carriers... So to begin with, there were people that were immune to it. Yeah. Phase two of the research project focused on creating workarounds. And while work was underway, creating an improved T-virus with 0% immunity, the pioneering Arclay Laboratory team under Dr. William Birkin engineered a new species of animal that would hunt down and kill survivors, beginning the simple bioorganic weapons, or BOWs, such as the web spinner. There's Ooh, your spider. There's our spider. But breaking ground with a genetically chimeric hunter A. Oh. Ooh. In the mid-1980s, the T-Virus Project focused on creating intelligent bioweapons, most famously the Tyrants. <laughs> After the collapse of Umbrella in the early 2000s, the T-Virus became available to dozens of organizations with the means to finalize Umbrella's research in their own way and dominate the weapon industry. Independently developed mutagen- mutagens such as T-Abyss were developed thanks to this. No, T-Abyss. What is that? We will... Go over the T Abyss later. Ooh, I'm excited for that one. I haven't heard of that one. So, let's go into the history, shall we? We shall. <laughs> From the progenitor virus's discovery in December of 1966, the ultimate goal of Dr. Oswell Spencer and his colleagues, Dr. Edward Ashford and Dr. James Marcus, was the birthing of a new age of eugenics with mutagenic viruses improving the human race. To fund this program, dubbed the Whisker Project, it was agreed that strains of the virus should be engineered as a military product, leading to the creation of Umbrella Pharmaceuticals as a front for this research. Research on progenitor strains was conducted simultaneously in different laboratories, with Ashford, Marcus, and Spencer all engaging in independent research. T-virus research began in the late 1960s, soon after Umbrella was founded, As the T-virus is a series of independently developed strains and not a single virus, new strains do not necessarily rely on recent research by other teams. Hmm. So, 
Here is the Spencer Project. Oh. Spencer's team developed their T-virus prototype at the Arclay Laboratory, where they had already undergone testing of their type A and type B progenitor strains. Little is known of Spencer's project, though it would appear Spencer was disappointed in its progress and ordered research data be stolen from his counterparts. Work on this virus was completely abandoned by 1978. Someone seemed a little salty. Oh, we already know how salty Spencer can get. (laughs) Now for Ashford Projects. Mm. Ashford performed research on his T-virus prototype at his family's stately home in Europe. In 1968, Spencer orchestrated an outbreak at the lab, resulting in Ashford dying from infection. Work on T-virus was put on hold until the 1980s when Ashford's cousin, Alexia Ashford, took charge of the project. The fruit of her labors would ultimately be T-Veronica virus. Ooh. Created through splicing Veronica virus into the progenitor genome. Alexia would go into hiding in 1983, leading to the misconception that her project was a failure and she had died just as Edward had. Oh, so she's still out there. Yeah. And we'll get into the T-Veronica virus later. Now for the Marcus Birkin project. Dr. James Marcus's research reached a breakthrough on January 13th, 1978, which warranted the official coining of the name T-Virus to divorce the strain from progenitor virus. The new strain was developed by splicing annelid genes into the viral genome. Using the virus on humans saw a very different response compared with progenitor infection. Rather than dying, the infected instead became aggressive, were found to have cannibalistic impulses, lost intelligence, and suffered from significant necrosis. (laughs) Zombies. In 1978, samples and research data were stolen by Dr. William Birkin, a protege of Marcus's. He had been offered a senior position at the Arclay Laboratory on the sole condition it be delivered to Spencer's team. Immediately upon his transfer in the summer of 1978, Birkin began drawing up plans to modify the virus further, splicing RNA from Ebola into the T-virus's genome. This, he believed, would make the virus highly contagious while keeping most victims alive as zombies. (laughs) Spencer was, however, unsatisfied with the virus the Arclay team was developing, as approximately 10% of people were determined to be unable to turn into zombies. So wait, he took the progenitor virus and spliced it with Ebola to create the T-virus. Yeah, essentially. So that explains a lot. Something like that. (laughs) To guarantee a near 100% success rate in battle, the Arclay team bonded a human egg and reptilian DNA through the virus in 1981, creating the Hunter. A creature that would be used in battle to kill these remaining survivors. Because the T-virus can make genetic recombination between different species comparatively easy, this virus was mass-produced with an umbrella and supplied to each research facility for new BOW model development. 
Starting around 1988, development of the T-virus entered phase three with the intention of creating reliable, intelligent BOWs. Its counterpart, Tyrant Project, had at the time determined it was statistically improbable for any one individual to be genetically altered to have the desired characteristics with the T-virus strains presently available. For the next several years, the Arclay Laboratory and NEST led global research into the E-strain. This new virus was also discovered in 1998 to force a second set of mutations in zombies, resulting in creatures such as crimson heads and lickers. Oh, lickers. New viral strains were developed towards the end of Umbrella's existence and the years following. One such version version was the T, the T plus G virus. However you say it. A T-virus strain which is able to enhance infected bodies with the ability to discharge electricity. Oh, snap. So, here are the effects of the infection of the T-virus. Like any other viruses, T-viruses made contact with the cell's membrane and insert their genetic coding into the cell. The cell absorbs the viral genome into its own, which hijacks the cell's intended functions, using them to produce virions similar to the original the new virions are then released from the host cell and infect the neighboring cells which starts the process all over again so basically what you're saying is this virus comes in hijacks the cells turns into what it wants it to turn it into and then forces them to reproduce yep. to take over other ones and it just continues. Yep. That's what makes it so contagious. Yep. <laughs> Several diseases have been linked to the T-virus. The first, which can be tentatively dubbed as progenitor disease, is a fatal viral disease caused by progenitor and early T-virus strains. Nothing is known concretely about how this disease works, whether causing a psychotine storm or simply rapidly mutating the patient until they die. The most common disease caused by T-viruses, however, is cannibal disease, a condition in which the patient mutates to have enhanced survival capabilities at the expense of brain damage and homicidal urges. Patients suffering advanced stage cannibal disease are dubbed zombies. Makes sense. <laughs> right? <laughs> with pre-symptomatic and early symptomatic cases being treatable with antiretroviral drugs. So basically, before you go too far into it, you can be treated. Yeah. If you're lucky enough to get it. <laughs> yeah. An unusual case of viral infection occurs in the bodies of adapters wherein they gain superhuman abilities with limited to no brain damage. As the genetic criteria for this unique reaction was rare, no such human mutants are known to have existed until the 1990s with the Tyrant Project's initial prototype BOWs. A number of other people, such as Sergei Vladimir and Albert Wesker, gained enhanced superhuman abilities following their own T-virus infections. That these were specially engineered T-virus strains designed to near-guarantee such mutations. 
So they specifically designed these viruses to make sure that they gain superpowers, essentially. So there's no risk, actually, for Wesker or Sergio. Nah. All right, let's go to known treatments. Okay. A number of treatments are known to exist for T-virus infection, developed either internally by Umbrella or by third-party groups. There are overall three distinct types of treatment for the virus. Antiretroviral therapy, antibody therapy, and vaccination. It should be noted that no treatment is expected to work with all strains of the virus. Makes sense. We're dealing with that now. <laughs> with COVID and what is it? The Delta COVID? Yeah, the Delta variant. Yeah. <sighs> right. Well, that is a lot of stuff about both viruses. And when we come back from our break, I believe we'll be discussing more on the G virus and the nemesis. Yes. All right. So let's take a quick break. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, you heard those gunshots, and you know what time it is. It is the mid-break. So, Daniel, what have you brought to the table for this mid-break? So, I've looked online and found where apparently you can pre-order your very own bust of part of a liquor. Which <laughs> Part of a liquor? Yeah, so basically it looks like it's the upper half, mostly above the shoulder, so I'd say neck to head. Okay, and uh, the fun price is $900. Holy cow. And I do not know if that counts shipping, but it's a pre-order currently on, looks like the website is 835.com and eight is spelled out and five is spelled out, but three is not. So it's eight spelled out, three, five spelled out.com. Yes. And more than likely you have to probably search for it on the site. I don't have an exact web address for the liquor but it is on pre-order currently uh, it looks like it would possibly be off a of pre-order between october to december of 2021 so but that is something that i just discovered if you do want to get yourself a large liquor bust <laughs> i mean that sounds pretty cool i know right we should have it right up here in the studio just one <laughs> i mean if somebody wants to buy it for us right <laughs> All right, Aylor, what'd you bring to the table today? Well, Xbox Live has a sale on Capcom games up to 70% off. Ooh. So that includes all the Resident Evil games. Well, most of the Resident Evil games. So if you're looking to play any of them, now is a good time. Up to 70% off. Run and grab them while you can. <laughs> as well as the other wonderful games that Capcom provides. But this is a Resident Evil lore cast, so let's talk about Resident Evil games. <laughs> well, I have brought something completely different to the table today. One of our fans on the Discord, Soviet Panther, brought up 
the fact that you can buy an airsoft version of the Samurai Edge, which is really cool, which got me thinking. I wonder if you can buy airsoft versions of any of the other guns. If you go to eBay, you can find not only Albert Wesker's M92 Resident Evil gun, or as we know it, the Samurai, you can also find the Resident Evil 4. Yeah, you heard me, Ariel. The Resident Evil 4 regular handgun that Leon carries in the beginning of the game. You can also find a... Was it a red? The red tail? The red tail, yeah. So you've got the red tail. Um, You can also buy a syringe, as in like the syringe guns. You can buy a syringe gun. Um, You can buy the, which is, this is cool, the 20th anniversary Samurai Edge variant, which is pretty cool. Uh, It's got a hefty price tag on it, though. I'm sure it does. It's a $400 price tag on eBay. Um, But if you guys go to eBay and just just check out the guns there's all kinds there's there's jill valentine's gun they've they've just got tons of stuff there so go check out on ebay and just just look them up and it's a never-ending list i'm gonna post some in the discord later on tonight but yeah it's it's an insane amount so um with that all being said i think that's all the stuff we have to bring to the table for now for now yeah um the the oh, excuse me the Resident Evil Lorecast Patreon will be coming soon, I promise. We're just working out the kinks to figure out what we can get you guys for any tier rewards. If you guys have any ideas, jump on the Twitter. It is RELurecast. Or you can jump on our Discord, on the Robots Radio Discord channel, and just post us some of your ideas, things you guys want to get out of the Patreon tiers. And, you know, if it's doable for us, we'll make it happen. But at any rate, let's get back to our discussion on viruses. All right, you heard those gunshots. You know what that is. This is the tail end of the show where we begin to discuss more on our viruses. So we last left the T-virus. What's our next virus? Looks like the next virus is the G-Virus, also known as the Golgotha virus. It is also a retrovirus in the progenitor family of viruses. It was developed by Umbrella USA as a bioweapon to rival and surpass the tyrant virus. No. (laughs) Yes, this this one is worse in other ways. The two viruses, while being descended from progenitor, are totally dissimilar whereas T-virus typically causes relatively minor mutations in human hosts, like zombies and tyrants, Golgotha causes such extreme genetic mutation victims are no longer recognizable as human. Human T-virus mutants are almost unanimously infertile, while Golgotha's G-mutants are highly fertile and asexually reproductive. That's terrifying. Yeah, that really is terrifying. (laughs) The virus, T-virus, causes necrosis of the body as a side effect, while Golgotha is capable of repairing dead cells and even reviving the dead. Because of these factors, the Golgotha is regarded as one of the greatest threats to the planet if an outbreak were to occur. And has an outbreak occurred of the G-virus? Not really. It's usually been stopped before it's became Mm -hmm. anything. Because if they did have one, it is 
with the effects that this has, it'd be terrible. Oh, uh, yeah. So the, the history of the G-Virus project was the Golgotha was isolated in 1988 by Dr. William Birkin, the chief researcher at Umbrella USA's top secret Arclay laboratory, founded in the body of Lisa Trevor, a human test subject that Spencer kept trapped in his mansion. Yep. As listed in the previous episode. Yep. Its discovery was made following her immune system's inexplicable destruction of an NEA-type parasite and could theoretically have existed since the late 1960s when testing on her began. As Golgotha was determined to be able to genetically alter a living being repeatedly and unpredictably as well as be able to repair damaged cells and revive the dead, it ran counter to Umbrella's plans to create a reliable military-grade BOW that could be controlled by army trainers. Umbrella Pharmaceuticals CEO Dr. Oswald E. Spencer was nonetheless interested in Golgotha for its potential eugenics purposes and authorized development as an R&D project unrelated to the T-Virus project. Early research on Golgotha took place in France at an underground research complex led by Dr. Christine Henry, a French countess from a family connected to Dr. Spencer. This partnership ceased in 1991 with the completion of Nest within a limestone cavern in the outskirts of Raccoon City. The G-Virus Project reached its final stages in 1998 alongside the T-Virus Project, which Dr. Birkin also oversaw, though the, through the abduction of locals, Nest researchers were able to get their hands on a number of test subjects for both projects, including children at a nearby orphanage. The accelerated use of test subjects was in fact so high that the newly commissioned incineration disposal plant P-12A suffered a biohazard due to having to process too much bio waste. At one point, on the night of, of September 22nd, the USS made its attack on Nest and fatally wounded Dr. Birkin in their recovery. In his dying actions, he infected himself with a remaining sample of Golgotha and muted, mutated into a powerful G-mutant that massacred the security team and leaked both Golgotha and the tyrant virus into the sewers. As, Ra as Raccoon City soon fell to a T-virus outbreak, Dr. Birkin continued to wander around seeking people to implant with G-embryos to propagate his new species. Ooh. How many G's were created is uncertain, though it is known some corpses were also infected with the virus and became G-zombies. Further attempts to steal Golgotha continued during the outbreak. So after Raccoon City, further research and modification of the Golgotha virus took place in the years after Raccoon City with Umbrella Europe, the rival company. Dr. Downing and the U.S. military all succeeding in retrieving samples, the latter through placing Sherry Birkin in government custody as a means of both studying her G-cells and keeping her away from those seeking the virus. The BSAA, which is an organization we will discuss later, has so far never been forced to combat a Golgotha outbreak. Nonetheless, their official policy is that if, if the virus is detected, the entire BSAA force is to be put on alert should the local branch be inadequate to destroying all trace, with the, that point being determined by the creation of new G-humans. Ooh, snap! So there's the transmission of the virus. There are two significant manners by which Golgotha is able to transmit transmit between individuals. First is the injection of the virus into the body. 
which Umbrella's USA Nest facility kept a number of vials of Golgothan storage preserved within a protein media dyed purple for immediate identification. Why? <laughs> they love change. <laughs> As the incubation period for Golgotha is very short, injection of a full or near full vial as performed by Dr. William Birkin is known to bring about mutation within seconds. Though it is possible this process would be delayed if a smaller viral load is injected, the second manner of transmission is by impl implantation by which of a G embryo. These organiz organisms are the natural offspring of G mutants and are forced into a human host body via oral implantation. Ew. Like a facehugger. <laughs> By being host to the parasitic embryo, the victim is then at risk of being infected from within. If the host is of a close genetic relationship to the embryo's parent, there is a high probability the embryo will merge into the host body and mutate them into Gs themselves. If the host is not deemed compatible, the embryo will force its way out within minutes, killing the host. It is uncertain if a rejected host will be infected with the virus. So these are just like aliens. It can be, yes. <laughs> the effects of the virus, the Golgotha has extreme effects on the human body. The virus infects cells close by, turning them into so-called G-cells. These G-cells then produce more of the virus, which will then spread further across the body. As this gradual spread starts from the point of infection, the body may mutate asymmetrically. This is seen in Dr. Birkin, who infected himself right in the right arm, which became considerably muscular in comparison to the left. Let's see. Other noticeable aspects of extreme mutations were the growth of a second pair of arms, which later mutated further into feet, and the reshaping of the ribcage into a mouth with bone teeth. With each physical trauma Birkin received, his mutations grew more and more severe until his form could no longer be recognized as human. So basically what you're saying is when a G-virus monster is wounded the body will heal itself but not perfectly yes it more than likely creates another mutation in mm -hmm. its place so that's why the Golgotha virus is not good for an outbreak yeah because these things just keep coming yes unless they're killed treatment a treatment for Golgotha was devised by the nest research team while working on the virus itself codenamed devil this vaccine was recommended for use by Nest staff in the event of an outbreak and has a high success rate in preventing the virus from infecting a patient's cells. This vaccine can be used on a patient who has already been infected with the virus, though the window for success is short and varies from host to host. It all would depend on how much of the virus you'd get. Further mutations beyond this point prevent the vaccine from working at all. As the vaccine cannot reverse mutation, those vaccinated after infection will show some mutation but cease mutating further. Nest scientists divide a form of surgery to remove growth of G-cells in the body. As the G-cells naturally produce the virus, the removal is necessary to wiping the virus from the body. So it sounds to me like if you ever to go against one of these G-virus entities, you'd need to use the vaccine in order to stop them from mutating, and then you could kill them. Yeah, don't get implanted. Yeah. More than likely. <laughs> right. So the, is that everything on the G-Virus? That I could divulge, yes. Divulge. Okay. So moving on. To the nemesis. Woo, woo, woo. Nemesis Alpha, or the NEA type, 
was a parasitic species genetically engineered by Umbrella Europe. Though useless for its physical capacity as a BOW, the Nemesis Project staff created the species as a workaround for brain damage and mental degradation, a common result of T-virus infection. And successful parasitization, oh my god, that's a mouthful, (laughs) processes, NEA demonstrate human-level intelligence and self-awareness, and could manipulate its host into handling weapons. Oh, like... Nemesis. Oh, stars. (laughs) The Nemesis Project's origins lie in the early to mid-1980s. Umbrella USA was pioneering BOW development with the intention of supplying products that were suitable for the U.S. military. The deciding factor on this was the issue of intelligence rather than of raw power as a powerful BOW BOW with limited intelligence would be unreliable. R&D projects, which created the Chimera and Web Spinner, were declared failures due to this issue. While the Cerberus and Hunter projects showed promise, each animal was only able to learn a few basic commands from their trainer and so were insufficient. Umbrella's bioweapons research began to move into phase three of its research with the creation of BOWs of human equivalent intelligence. The inspiration of this project was that of Las Plagas, a parasitic species present in regional Spanish folklore, which would hook itself to the spinal cord to control or influence the host and break out through the neck to defend themselves if need be. The NEA were genetically engineered to mimic these qualities. So what you're saying is the nemesis virus is a mimic of the Las Plagas. Yeah. Ooh. The nemesis project itself was overseen by Umbrella Europe and aimed to complete phase three research by developing an intelligent parasite rather than an intelligent and powerful organism. This parasite would then be placed within the head of an existing BOW and take over its mental functions as a replacement brain. Unfortunately, no BOW in 1988 existed, which could survive this process, and all test subjects perished after some five minutes, perhaps along with the parasites themselves. The first successful attempt took place at Umbrella USA's Arclay Laboratory that very year. When Umbrella Pharmaceuticals CEO Oswell Spencer personally ordered one to be shipped over. This experiment was indirectly part of the new Tyrant project, but as no such BOW had been successfully manufactured, the nemesis parasite was instead implanted within the body of Lisa Trevor, a human test subject. Due to Trevor's unique physiology, which emerged from prior mutations, the parasite was rejected by her immune system and killed, with elements of its genome being spliced into Trevor's. Further investigation ruled this to be the work of the Golgotha virus, leading to the subsequent G-virus project. The R-Clay Laboratory was made no further effort to obtain a second nemesis parasite. The second successful implantation within an organism took place 10 years after the Trevor experiment in mid-1998. With the Tyrant Project being successfully completed and the creation of a BOW of human-level intelligence, 
the Nemesis Project was effectively a dead end until a decision was made for an experiment to implant a Nemesis parasite into one of the mass-produced T-103 Tyrant clones. Yes. The resulting experiment, dubbed Nemesis T-Type, was sent out into Raccoon City with orders to hunt down the last of stars. And that he did. Oh, yes, he did. Which would prove the parasite's mental abilities. No further work was done on the Nemesis Project, and no further Nemesis T-types are known to have been produced. So, I just want to say this. For everybody out there who's played the remake, this explains to you why Nemesis mutates in the new game. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) So, here's some biology... NEA-type parasites are transplanted into a host body when they are at cellular infant stage of development. Planting itself onto the brainstem, the parasite begins to grow. During its growth, it destroys the nerves connecting the brainstem with the brain itself and takes over functions as a replacement. This act gives the NEA-type complete control over the host. Aside from taking over brain functions, NEA-type parasites produce secretions, which infect those in contact with it with the T-virus. In the instance of the Nemesis T-type, the T-103 body was bathed in these secretions over the course of its mission, and tissue exposed to it mutated to become tougher. STARS officer Brad Vickers was seriously injured by the Nemesis T-type, and as a result of exposure to the secretions, he was able to survive the wound by quickly mutating into a zombie and possessed higher-than-average strength. Poor Brad. And that's all I have on the Nemesis virus. Ooh. Or parasite. Yeah. See... Not too long ago, Capcom actually released a statement saying that the Nemesis virus or parasite was not too far off from the Las Plagas, which we actually discussed off air. And this totally makes more sense now as to why Las Plagas was even in the Resident Evil series. Yep. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So we covered a lot of viruses on this episode and there's still a lot more to cover. And I think it's going to take at least two more episodes to cover these like they deserve it. Um, so next couple episodes going to be about viruses and the parasites. But to synopsis, what we discussed in this episode, we discussed the T virus, the progenitor virus, the G virus, and the nemesis virus and how pretty much all of these strains stem from the progenitor virus in some degree. Well, really the nemesis kind of stemmed from the Las Plagas. True. Yeah. So nemesis is kind of its standalone kind of thing, but it was a combination between the T virus and Las Plagas. Yeah. So, but at any rate, we will continue the next episode next week on what viruses you have to come back to that because I, I was going through this. And <laughs> How I, many viruses are there? We currently have 14 wrote down. And I'm sure there's more. So Potentially. Yeah. But at any rate, we'll wrap the episode up here. Thank you guys for listening. 
and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Resident Evil Lurecast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend. Leave a comment and review. If you want to keep chatting with us about all things Resident Evil, you can find us on the Robots Radio Discord. You can also chat with us at RE Lurecast on Twitter. Till next time, stay safe out there. And remember, we might have something that might interest you, stranger. What up tonight, City? You're listening to N54 Radio. This is DJ Sparks bringing you a new hit show from Night City, Cyberpunk, a cyberpunk red live play podcast. Listen as a ragtag group slamming on the corpos. Survive the streets and try to keep from being flatlined. You can tune in on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. DJ Sparks out! Hello, this is Charlie Transmutation coming to you with another PSA announcement. No, Charlie. This is a commercial. What? Crap. Nobody told me that. Well, what are you supposed to do in this thing anyway? Well, Charlie, I'm glad you asked. This is the part where we introduce our new homebrew 5e D&D podcast, The Fumbling Four and the Almighty Crit, where we explore the homebrew world of Altaris using homebrew rules and homebrew material from the Dungeon Master's Guild. Yeah, sounds boring. I'm out of here. See you later, Charlie. We hope to have you guys come check us out soon. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts.